Good morning, church family. As always, it's a joy to be with you, to spend these moments studying God's Word together. I'd like you to ask you to take your Bibles now and turn to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 31 through 43 together. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 738. That's 738. And I've entitled today's message, Age of Empires. We'll begin in a word of prayer, and then we'll consider the text together. So let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful to gather together as a church family today and to sing and to pray and to read your word and to study it together. Thank you, Lord, for each one that you've brought to today's service. Might you bless each one of them. And might you minister to their hearts as they interact with your word today. We pray for those who couldn't be with us today due to illness. We know some of them watching online today. Lord, would you bring them back to full health soon? Lord, might you use today's text to enlarge our vision of you, to give us greater confidence as we face the future. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we began looking at Daniel chapter 2 last week. And as the chapter opened, we saw the most powerful man in the world having a full-blown panic attack about a dream he just had. He woke up, he was in a cold sweat, eyes wide as saucers, and immediately he called in all of his most trusted advisors. These were the palm readers, the crystal ball gazers, the fortune tellers, anybody that he thought might be useful in explaining the meaning of his dream. So he calls them all in, and they all say, King Nebuchadnezzar, we would love to help you. Give us the content of the dream. We'll give you our interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar says, no, no, no. I can't trust your interpretation that way. What I need you to do is first... You tell me what I dreamed. Then tell me what it means. That's how I'll know that you're telling me the truth. Well, Nebuchadnezzar's advisors looked at him and they said, Oh, king, there isn't a man alive who can do what you're asking. They say to him, Only a god knows the contents of a man's dreams. And we know that the gods don't have any dealings with us. We can't help you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Well, Nebuchadnezzar then threw himself into a fit of rage. And he ordered that all of his advisors should be killed immediately. And so Arioch, the king's captain, went out and he prepared to do this grisly deed. Well, finally, word reaches Daniel and his friends. They were going to be slaughtered along with all of the other advisors. But when Daniel hears the king's order, he says, hold on a minute. He says to Arioch, you go back to Nebuchadnezzar. You tell him that I can help. So make an appointment with me. I'll tell him what he dreamed. I'll tell him what it means. There's no need for all of this bloodshed. So Arioch goes back to Nebuchadnezzar, shares this news. And then Daniel calls a prayer meeting gathers himself and then his three friends, and they just pray to God. They say, God, we know that you have the answer. 
So please reveal to us the content of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. Please tell us what his dreams mean. Spare us from this terrible fate. God answers that prayer. And God reveals the contents and the meaning of Nebuchadnezzar's dream to Daniel. Daniel responds in the chapter by having a worship service to God. Praises God, who is sovereign over all, the God who is powerful and who knows all things, even knows what a man dreams. In fact, we learn here that it was God who had planted the dream into Nebuchadnezzar's mind. It was a revelation from God to him. So now that he is armed with the answer to the king's questions, Daniel presents himself to Nebuchadnezzar. And we see his words to the king in chapter 2, verses 27 and 28. He answered the king and said, King, no wise man, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. Verse 28, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Like so many other verses in this book, these verses make a great summary of the whole of the book of Daniel. That nobody can tell the future, nobody can control their fates, but there is a God in heaven. He is all-sovereign, He is all-powerful, He is all-knowing, He has the whole world in His hands, and He knows what is coming. He knows because He's ordained it. And so if we want to know about our lives, about our futures, we must look to the God of heaven alone. Friends, this brings us into today's text. Again, Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 to 43. Here we're going to learn the content of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. We're also going to consider the proper interpretation of his dream. And I hope that by the time we all leave this morning we will have less fear and more hope about the future of our world. All right, so let's jump into the text now. If you're looking at the outline that I've provided in the bulletin, you'll see that it breaks down very neatly into two parts. First part of our passage, Daniel reveals the contents of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The second part, he gives the interpretation of the dream. So let's start there with the beginning, the content of the king's dream. We see this in verses 31 through 35. Allow me to read through it. Daniel says, You saw, O king, and behold, now here's the dream, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain 
and filled the whole earth. All right, so here is Nebuchadnezzar's dream. In that dream, he saw the image of a colossus. It was shining as brightly as the noonday sun, and it was terrifying in its appearance. And this colossus was comprised of four different metals in descending value. There was gold, then silver, then bronze, then iron, and then at the very bottom, there was a mixture of iron and clay. Then a stone appeared in the dream, a stone not of human construction. And this stone was hurtled at the base of the Colossus, and the entire statue was reduced to powder. And then that stone reemerged once the powder blew away. And that stone began to grow until it became a great big mountain. Everywhere you looked, there was nothing but this great mountain. Okay, that was Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Now, what on earth did that dream mean? Well, we find out its meaning in verses 36 through 40. What Daniel explains in these verses is that the four metals of the Colossus represented four world kingdoms, which would rise and fall over the course of history. In verses 37 and 38, Daniel explains that the statue's head represents the Babylonian Empire. That's the empire which Nebuchadnezzar was then ruling. Nebuchadnezzar's empire was the empire of gold. You see, during Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Babylon really was an empire of gold. It was a global superpower a center of learning and culture whose influence spread to the four corners of the earth. It was the first real superpower in world history. It was also home to many ancient wonders, including the Hanging Gardens, which are listed among the seven ancient wonders of the world. It was also home to a massive ziggurat, which was called the Tower of Babel, though it shouldn't be confused with the Tower of Babel from Genesis. It was also home of the great Ishtar Gate. This was just an eye-popping entrance into the city. It was made of blue and gold, just spectacular in appearance. This was an empire to be rivaled by no other. And yet, as breathtaking as it was and as powerful as it was, it was also a very short-lived empire. In fact, this empire would only survive Nebuchadnezzar by about 20 years. Then it would be conquered by Cyrus the Great of the Medo-Persian Empire. And this takes us to the second part of verse 39. The Medo-Persian Empire is the empire of silver. It's silver because it lacked the outward beauty of the Babylonian Empire, but it was also more durable than its predecessor. History tells us that the um, Medo-Persian Empire lasted for a full 200 years from 538 B.C. to 331. At its height, its borders extended farther than the borders of Babylon. It stretched from Turkey all the way to India. 
This is the empire that God used to release the Jewish people from Babylonian captivity to allow them to go back home and rebuild. But as Daniel explains, this empire would fall as well. Babylon rose and it would fall. Then the Medo-Persian empire would rise and it too would fall. History tells us this empire fell to Alexander the Great. He was the leader of the new Greek empire. This takes us to the second part of verse 39. The Greek empire is the empire of bronze. It too would last about 200 years. In verse 39, Daniel explained that this kingdom would rule, quote, over all the earth. And so it would. The Greek empire would extend beyond the borders of Babylon and the Medo-Persians. The Greek empire would span from Egypt all the way into India. So literally from Africa to Asia, the Greek empire spread. Alexander reportedly cried out on his deathbed because he realized there were no more lands for him to conquer. The whole known world was under his sway. During his lifetime, one of Alexander's goals was to unite this enormous empire under a single language, the Greek language. And he succeeded in doing this so that you could travel from Africa to Asia without having to learn a new language along the way. In fact, all of our New Testament scriptures are written in the Greek language. Now, after Alexander's death, the Greek empire crumbled into four different parts. Four parts were led by Alexander's four generals. But then in 146 BC, the empire finally disappeared altogether and was replaced by the Roman Empire. This takes us to verse 40 of our text. The Roman Empire is called the Empire of Iron because, verse 40 says, quote, Iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, this empire shall break and crush all things. And friends, that's exactly how the Roman Empire rose to power. It just crushed the Greek Empire piece by piece until there was nothing left of that former empire. And then the Roman Empire ruled for centuries and centuries with an iron fist. In fact, the Roman soldiers were known collectively as the Army of Iron because they were covered head to toe in iron. At its height, the Roman Empire covered nearly the entirety of the European continent, from Great Britain all the way down to Italy, from Spain all the way to Turkey. The Roman Empire built a system of roads all over Europe to facilitate ease of travel. Many of these roads are still functional today. They also built a huge system of aqueducts to get water into the major cities. They developed a sophisticated legal system, which our own legal system is partly modeled after. Christ and his apostles lived in the days of the Roman Empire. And for centuries, it was the world's only superpower. So to summarize all of this, Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream a colossus. 
with metals of deteriorating quality as we moved down that statue. There was a head of gold. That was Nebuchadnezzar's own empire, the Babylonian empire. But God revealed and then Daniel explained that one day that Babylonian empire would collapse. It would give way to the next empire, the empire of silver. That would be the Medo-Persians. But then one day the Medo-Persian empire would also collapse and it would give way to the empire of bronze, the Greek empire. After a few more centuries, though, the Greek empire would also collapse. It would give way to the empire of iron, the Roman empire. One colossus, four medals, four world kingdoms. But now, friends, here's where Daniel's prophecy starts to get really interesting. Let's look at verse 41. So we look at verse 41, we notice that something happens to the kingdom of iron. The legs on the statue representing the start of the Roman Empire, they are solid iron. But as we move down the statue and we reach the feet, we find that the materials have changed. The feet are made out of a mixture of iron and clay. So we have... One empire which starts out very strong, but as time progresses, it morphs into a new form and it becomes something much weaker. Daniel's explanation of all of this is that the Roman Empire would persist from its founding right on through to the end of the present age, while also morphing into something new along the way. Daniel describes the nature of the Roman Empire's mutation in verses 41 to 43. First part of verse 41, he explains that Rome will morph from a strong empire to a comparatively weak empire. From solid iron to a mixture of iron and clay. Second part of verse 41, he also explains the empire would morph from a unified kingdom to a conflicted kingdom. He says it would be a divided empire. So it would, it would develop into a new form in which there were multiple leaders all wrangling with one another. Then verse 42, the empire would also morph from a single empire united under a single head to a federation of semi-autonomous states with a plurality of leadership. Some parts of this federation would be larger than others, some parts would be stronger than others. Verse 42 says, quote, As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong, partly brittle. Those toes are representing the semi-autonomous states and the leaders of those states. This will become really clear in a new image in Daniel chapter 7. Then verse 43 also adds this, that this new mutated Roman Empire with its conglomeration of semi-autonomous states, each pulling in its own direction, and with some members of the confederation being strong, others being weak, this will make for an inherently unstable uh, empire. But even so, again, Daniel says the empire will persist from the time of its founding 
right through to the very end of the present age. Now, wait a minute, you say. I thought the Roman Empire collapsed more than 1,500 years ago. How can Daniel say that once founded, the Roman Empire would continue on to the very end of the age? How can Daniel say such a thing? Well, it is true, isn't it, that the Roman emperor was deposed more than 1,500 years ago, that there has not been a Roman emperor since. But isn't it also true that in terms of culture, economics, and even religion, the Roman Empire has basically held together right through to the present time? In fact, my friends, if you look really closely, I think you will find that modern Europe looks a whole lot like the bottom of the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. We just don't call it the Roman Empire anymore. It's been rebranded. It's morphed into something a little different. But now we call it the European Union. But look at this union. What is it? Well, it's a conglomeration of semi-autonomous states, some big, some small, some powerful, some weak, but all united together under a single political banner, complete with a president, an executive council, a parliament, common set of laws stretching the whole continent, common currency, the euro, and geographically it even covers virtually all of the same territory that ancient Rome occupied. And to this day, it is the most powerful political bloc in the world, especially if you count as part of that bloc this, this continent's closest allies and former colonies like the United States and Canada and Australia. A form of that old Roman Empire has persisted right on through to today. According to Daniel's prophecy, this political powerhouse will continue right on through to the end of the present dispensation, eventually reorganizing itself again to become a confederacy of ten realms under the rule of ten kings. Something, again, that becomes very clear in chapter 7 of this book. Then at the very end of this age, that old reconstructed empire will even be ruled by an emperor again. We'll learn more about him in coming weeks. Maybe he won't use the title emperor, but he will have all of its powers According to Daniel, this last iteration of the Roman Empire will continue until that stone not made with hands is thrust at its base, reducing it all to powder, and then taking its place as a mountain that covers the whole earth. More about that stone in coming weeks. But friends, this is what God revealed to Nebuchadnezzar. This is what Daniel saw that there was a great statue of four parts, 
each part representing a major world superpower, one coming directly on the heels of the next. First world superpower, the Babylonian Empire. The next, the Medo-Persian Empire. After that, the Greek Empire. And then finally, the Roman Empire. And we saw how the Roman Empire would be different from all of the empires that preceded it. In all of the other cases, the empires rose and they fell, but during their lifetime they remained in basically the same state. The Roman Empire was different. It would rise as as an empire of iron, but as time moved on, it would change forms. It would become a, a conglomeration of iron and clay. It would be a weaker form, a less organized form. It would include more internal conflicts, perhaps less political clout, but it would still persist. And I believe we've seen that Daniel's uh, prophecy has been incredibly accurate. Indeed, there is a form of old Rome even to this day. New name, perhaps a new governance structure, but one that looks a lot like the feet of that Colossus. My friends, can I offer some words of application in light of all we've seen here in this text? First of all, as we went through the passage, I hope you appreciated just how amazing the correspondence is between what recorded history tells us about these empires and what Daniel prophesied about them before they ever came to be. In fact, the correspondence between the two is so remarkable that around the end of the 19th century, uh, liberal Christians began saying, there's no way the book of Daniel could have been written before all of these things took place. It is way too accurate to have happened that way. So they began to opine that, that maybe someone claiming to be Daniel or claiming to have been writing before it all took place actually, actually wrote some kind of a forgery. They wrote after all of these kingdoms had risen and fallen, going back pretending that they were writing as if it was future. This is what they came up with to try to explain the correspondence between the two. Of course, there was no physical evidence to support such an opinion. Everything that we have suggests that the book of Daniel was written at the time it says it was. No evidence of insertions, deletions, corruptions in the copying of it from that time. My friends, what we have here is no forged piece of literature. What we have here is a genuine work predicting the future as it would unfold. What this passage teaches us, friends, is that there really is a God in heaven. He really is there. And He really does know the future. He knows every last detail of it. He knows everything that's going to happen to you every moment of your life. And He knows how the course of world events are going to unfold. And God knows all of these things, the Bible says, because God has ordained the future. And God knows what He has ordained. Friends, this should give us great confidence in God. To know that God does not merely react 
to the events of the world as they unfold. But no, God is at the headwaters of it all. And He ordained what comes to pass. Nothing happens apart from His will. And to know that He is a good God. And that He's all-powerful. To know His promises that He's going to work all things together for good to those who love Him. This ought to give us great confidence. See, you and I have no idea... In terms of the details of life, what is going to happen next? But God knows. The fact that He knows should give us great calm. Second, friends, I think these truths should also drive us into God's Word. It's human nature to want to know the future. We all all want to know it. But we've also got to know where to turn to learn about the future. You know, the place to turn is not to the horoscope section of the local newspaper or to the palm readers or to the fortune tellers. It's not to go to the astrologist. It's not to crack open a fortune cookie. None of that is going to tell you what the future really holds. If you want to know your future, get into God's Word. He hasn't given us all the details, clearly. But what he does give us is the broad outlines of history. He says to us, here is my plan for history. Here is the way it is basically going to unfold. Here are the things that you can be looking for. He shows us what the future will look like. He tells us about our individual futures, whether we will end our lives and head into glory or head into misery. He tells us that and he tells us how to know what our end will be. Friends, let the words of today's passage drive you more and more into the scriptures to find out who you are, why you were made, and where all things are headed. Then I think this passage does a third thing for us. I think it fills us with hope. You know, hope is in short supply today. Just listen to these headlines from the current issue of World Magazine. First headline, a wicked storm from the east. Ukrainians wake to an invasion. Next headline, Poles welcome the war torn, saying, we know it could be us. Next headline, U.S. adoptions in Ukraine come to a halt as Russia invades and orphans flee. Next headline, America's refugee infrastructure may not be ready for another mass influx. Next headline, COVID-19, two years on. Now, friends, these are bad headlines. And if all you have are these headlines, you are going to find yourself struggling against depression every day. How much better to be in God's Word and to see from His Word that He's in control of all things and that He is unfolding history according to a predetermined plan and that the ends of God's plans are good. Knowing these things, we can transcend the the miserable headlines of the present. We can look to that future that He holds out for us. We can have hope that that somehow God is going to take all that is wrong with this world, all those things that have been broken because of sin, and He's going to turn them around for good. You know, there's something else to note about Daniel's prophecy. As amazing as they are, they really are not as specific as we would like them to be, are they? 
There are no names given. There are no dates offered. None of the little minute details are expressed to us. He just gives us the broad contours. You know, God did that on purpose. Because it is God's will that we should have enough knowledge of what's coming that we would have confidence in Him. But that we should not know enough that we should become either puffed up with pride or that we should think we no longer need His Word or His wisdom. You see, God has ordered things such that we have to live every day of our lives by faith. We know the big things. We're not given all of the minute details. So we learn to just trust in God, to wait and to see how God will bring about all of His plans. It's good for us to learn how to live by faith. And then one final lesson that I think we can draw from today's text. I think this passage is also a great reminder to us that all human institutions are fragile. You know, when the Babylonian Empire marched into Judah, conquering the promised land and carting off Daniel and all of his friends into captivity, it must have seemed as if Babylon was invincible. Nobody could stop them. And during all the years of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, that truly was an empire of gold. It was a glorious empire. But just 20 years after Nebuchadnezzar died, that empire died too. The most powerful empire in the world collapsed almost overnight. The same thing happened to all the other empires, the Medo-Persian Empire and the Greek Empire. The Roman Empire lost its emperor. It disintegrated, recombined into a new, weaker form. But that too will be destroyed when the stone not made with hands is thrust into its base. My friends, every human institution will one day fail. They are all finite and fragile. Friends, that should drive us all to begin rooting our identity in something beyond man-made institutions. Don't root your ultimate identity in anything other than God and in His Son, Jesus. Not in, your, not in your nation, not in anything except God. He is the only one who is from eternity and will continue on to eternity. He is the only one who will not change or weaken over time. He is the only immortal, uh, eternal one. If you want something strong and stable to root your life in, you've got to root it in Him. You know, God really does love this world. He made it. He is involved in it. He revealed to Daniel some of the contours of the future because He wants us to know. He wants us to have faith in Him. He wants us to trust that He's a a good God, that He's in control, that even when it seems like life is falling apart around us, that he is still holding it up with his own hands. He's a God who loves the world so much that he even committed himself to solving its sin problem by sending his son into the world to live a life of perfect righteousness, to bear the penalty of all of our sins on his shoulders, on the cross, to die 
experiencing hell so that we would not have to. And then rising His Son from the dead on the third day, proving His victory over sin and death and hell. He gives to all people everywhere the offer of life and salvation if they will come to Him in repentant faith through His Son, Jesus. He invites us to become a part of His story. A story that will not end like the kingdoms of man will end. I invite you, if you've not done so, to trust in God through His Son, Jesus. Take hold of that life that He offers. Become a part of His never-ending story. You can do that right from your seat. As I pray to God, you can pray too, confessing sins and expressing your faith in Him. Or if you're not ready for that, you can always catch me after the service and request an appointment with me. And we can set a time later in the week where we talk in depth about such things and see if perhaps it is time for you to do business with God. Well, let's close in prayer now together. Father, we thank you for the time that you've given us. We thank you for revealing enough about the future to us that we can have confidence that you know what is coming, you are in control of what comes, that nothing that happens in our lives is apart from your good and gracious will. Yet you do not reveal enough to us that we can develop spiritual pride, think that we no longer have a need of you. Rather, we, we are called to live day by day in faith. Help us, Lord, to live by faith in you. Help us, Lord, not to become overwhelmed by the trials of the present, but to transcend those trials and to remember to anchor ourselves to you and to your plans. Lord, if there's someone here who doesn't yet know you with saving faith, if they don't have your very spirit residing within their souls, Lord, would you please draw them today? Bring them to saving faith. And I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.